Hello, and welcome to another episode of Balanced Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest introduced to you now. Jorge Ramon is a scientific journalist and health coach. He brings a unique evolutionary biological approach to modern living, integrating the best of ancestral wisdom and practices with the best of modern life. Jorge also works both at the local and national level with environmental and public health organizations to educate about the pressing issues regarding human and environmental health. Through writing, speaking, and coaching, he hopes to replace harmful misinformation with the truth. He is the author of Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. He is also the host of the Live Damn Well podcast, of which I was fortunate enough to be hosted on. His goal with the podcast is simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, Jorge wants to bring a balanced perspective from the experts to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible. You can find Jorge at www.livedamnwell.com. Jorge Ramon, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Casey, thank you so much for having me, man. Absolutely. You just, when you find your people, you know your people. And when I came across your work, especially in the podcast, I saw that we have shared a few guests and just listening into your content, I knew pretty much immediately that we wanted to host you here. You have a really great mm-hmm. message and you do a really good job of, of conveying that message in a way that's really simple and, and easy to understand. So I really appreciate that about you. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I think you know, as I first started to go into the world of nutrition, I kind of came across this, um, a bunch of different opinions and you hear this all the time. You hear, Oh, well, plants are bad. You should just eat meat or meat is bad. You should just eat plants and, or fat is bad or fat is good. And right. You hear the, the alternative to everything. Right. And I think there are pieces of the truth that you can take from every single position. And I think that's where I started off. And that, that was really the driving force for my book. Um, it was trying to find as many perspectives as I possibly could um, to try to really get as close as I can to the truth. I'm not going to be naive enough to say that what I have written in that book is absolute truth. I know that it's not. And in the coming years, science evolves and that's good. Science should evolve and things will change. And so my goal is really to do that, to get as many perspectives as possible, take the best and leave the rest. I absolutely love that. You definitely got into the right field by talking about nutrition because, boy, I I don't know if you can find another area of human study that has more nuance and it's so difficult when we want to give somebody a really straightforward answer, yet we have to say, like, we don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't know. It's like like predicting weather. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's like it depends. Exactly. It depends is always the answer. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, before we dive into your content, I do want to say for the listener who's not necessarily watching the YouTube, you're missing out on beautiful scenery in the background. You were in Costa Rica. How did you end up there? Yeah, so I um it was it was a long shot. It was so weird. And I and I think, oh man, there's a few um there's a long, long story behind this that kind of prefaces how amazing this was of an opportunity and how much this came across by just pure coincidence. I mean, this land, me landing, this was like kind of, you know, giving me an example that maybe there is something out there, some, whatever you might call it, God or the universe or something, because this was kind of a shot in the dark. It it was like, you know, COVID times where everything was locked down. All of my internships got canceled that I applied to. Um, and so I was really scrambling. And then, you know, ultimately I, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this health thing. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tr- publish this book. I'm going to uh, start this podcast, even though I was deathly afraid of public speaking and hearing my own voice just made me cringe to the point of like being totally crippled. Oh, it's the worst. And so, <laughs> It's the worst, right? It's like, yeah, and you kind of get used to it, but you even that, so you hear your voice and it's like, oh, I, I hate that guy. Who is that guy talking? <laughs> um, and so 
you know, that, that was really how I came about it. And it was, you know, I decided to get certified as a primal health coach. Um, and I was subscribed to the newsletter. Weirdly, I don't read a lot of the newsletters <laughs> that I subscribe to. It's just, I delete most of them, or I just don't read them it's like a couple thousand unread emails. But for this, for some reason, I decided to click on the newsletter by the primal health coach Institute. And I, I clicked on it and I, I was reading through it. And I just remember being captivated by what's behind me, by, by the jungle, by these kind of images in my head of being able to pick a banana from a, from a tree, to being able to pick a mango from a tree and to be able to see the sun and to be able to see the ocean. And for me, it was months before I opened up that email that I, that I had every morning I'd wake up and I'd imagine what it would be like to live someplace like this. And then I came across this email and it was an email that was uh, interviewing the owner of this, of this place, of this wellness retreat center that I'm at. And so total shot in the dark, I found their email. They had no positions available or nothing. I was just like, look, I, I love what you guys are doing with your center. I just got certified as a health coach. And they're like, well, you know what? We're hiring a health coach. And you know, the owner was also a primal health coach. So it just came about by pure chance, honestly. Wow, that's so interesting. It's so funny to look back on all of our most important decisions and the way things kind of work out. I think about like buying my home, buying my car, getting married. Like those, there was so little time put thinking into thinking about those things. Like I spent more time obsessing what to watch on Netflix most nights than I did think about any of those other things. It's funny how the right things for us just tend to kind of drop in our laps and, and they just make so much sense for us. I think all of us can look back on our life and, and, and see that that was the case, like major monumental decisions made almost instantaneously because it just clicked. Yeah. It, it's so weird. And I, I started getting into Joe Dispenza like months before that. I don't know if you know yeah. who that is, yeah. but he, he's, yeah, he was a huge impact on me and he's like, um, you know, one of the mentors, the big mentors, I think <laughs> I have like the big three mentors as I have them in my head. And as I've been kind of referring to them throughout uh, other podcast interviews that I've been on, which was Dr. Gabor Mate, Dr. Jordan Peterson, and Dr. Joe Dispenza, wow. those three shaped me and helped me get out of that whole depression that I was in. And so for me, Dr. Joe Dispenza, I, I gotta give him credit <laughs> because I think without him, I would not be here. Wow. Wow. That's really amazing. Yeah. Funny that you talk yeah. about it that way. I, I do a similar thing, but I call it the Mount Rushmore. So I try to name four of, of the people that influenced me the most. So if you add one, it could be a Mount Rushmore. That, that works too. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Well, you already mentioned something um, that I would love to start by talking about. You open your book in probably one of the most vulnerable ways I've ever seen a book opened. And you talk about um, that depression that you were in. You were in a pretty dark place. Can you tell us a little bit about your life and, and how you got to that space and what that felt like? Yeah, well, it was a long journey to get there. And I think I, I didn't realize that the symptoms of looming depression and anxiety had been there my whole life. I just didn't know them. And, you know, I, we were, my family and I were immigrants to the United States. And to kind of put you back all the way back to like elementary school, I didn't speak the language. So uh, Spanish was my first language. And so I got there and it was like, you know, I was already kind of predisposed to this anxiety and social anxiety and, and depression because, you know, there was a long family history of that. And so for me to not know the language of this place and be around new people that I now needed to become like not only my peer group, but my friend group, that was really tough. And that opened me up to a lot of uh, insecurities and, um, and social anxiety because, you know, I, I couldn't, I literally just couldn't communicate. Right. And so that kind of transitioned and morphed and I got to know the language and everything was fine. Uh, but there was still this underlying uh, crippling social anxiety. And, and when I say that, it was like, I remember waking up 
um, not waking up, sorry. I remember getting up from my seat in elementary school and I would, I would literally, it was like I was seeing myself in third person and just like judging everything I was doing. Like everything I was like every little movement, like maybe my, my, my leg kind of scratched the desk or, you know, some water got on my face and it would be like totally crippling, like this sense of really severe, like toxic shame for every little thing I did. And that kind of continued onto, uh, onto pretty recently, actually, when I've been trying to kind of undo some of that damage. But, uh, on top of that was, uh, I was a competitive swimmer for a long time. And so 10 plus years of me doing, you know, doubles practices where I would, you know, swim for four hours a day. And then additionally, sometimes I would have like an hour of, of weightlifting or something like that. And so a lot of people don't realize that the people that are at the extremes of fitness oftentimes are not healthy. Um, and so that was the case with me, especially because I also suffered, suffered from a lot of insomnia, uh, when I was little, like my earliest memory, if someone asked me my earliest memory, it's not, you know, going to the zoo and like some really nice memory. I have those, but it was actually me struggling to sleep when I was like two or three years old. It was me, you know, spending hours to fall asleep. What I thought was just normal. It was like, oh, well, I'm just kind of laying here and it's, it's chill. Um, and then I would wake up four or five times a night and usually I would end up on the floor. And one time I remember very, very uh, strongly that I actually fell off of the bed and I like hit my head on the ground and maybe that's, that's why I got depressed, you know? Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but you know, my parents had to put pillows on the ground uh, ever since then. And so that was a real strong sign. Like buddy, your sleep is really bad. And that continued like while I was swimming. And so obviously if you talk to anyone who knows anything about health, you talk about sleep, sleep is a foundational uh, kind of pillar of health. And so for me, that was lacking. And then, you know, I opened up my book with, you know, years down the line, I was in college getting ready to go back to, to kind of swim the next year. And I was doing a sports physical and, you know, I got asked a bunch of questions that you get asked at the doctor, like, you know, are you engaging in sexual intercourse? Are you using condoms? Do you have an SDI? Like all this fun stuff, you know? And then they got to a question where I had heard it before, but the feeling that it gave me was something unlike anything I'd, I'd ever felt before that. And the question that was asked was any thoughts of suicide. And I just, I, I, I choked up. I couldn't even answer the question. My mouth dried up and it was like this innate instinctual response. It wasn't like I thought about it. It wasn't like I planned for it. It just, it just happened. And that, that not only scared my doctor, but that, but that scared me because I didn't know what was happening. And so I kind of brushed it off and, you know, I went about um, going through that year. And that was really one of the toughest years uh, I, I've ever had and almost, and almost my last one. Um, and, you know, at that point it was, it was kind of amplified by the pandemic because everyone was alone. Um, and you know, it was, you were getting all of these different sources of information about what was going on with the pandemic. Was it, you know, this huge conspiracy theory or was it, you know, just another virus or, you know, you got these extremes uh, and you didn't know what was happening. And so for me, uh, because of my past interest in nutrition and ancestral health, I got to say, I really fell into the, the more conspiracy side of things um, for the worse. And so I, I was there and uh, I was very, very um, just angry, just pissed at everything, at life, at myself, at people. And I kind of destroyed a lot of relationships. And, and for me, it was really the, the unconscious goal that I think I had was I'm going to make people not love me anymore because if I do that, then I can take my life and I cannot feel guilty about it. And so long story short, 
that happened for some relationships that didn't happen for others. And for the ones that really held on and really were there for me, I, I just said, I can't do this shit. I need to get, I need to get my shit together because otherwise I know where this can lead. And I know where this almost led. So it was from that point where I decided to start writing the book. And, uh, you know, I, I started it as a 12 page document where I was really like, well, I'm just going to kind of list a few things that have helped me and, you know, um, getting healthier and feeling better. And I'm going to give it out on my website as a, as a freebie for people to just look at at a time when we were very disempowered uh, by our own governments and public health authorities and scientists. And um, pretty much everyone in authority was telling us there's nothing you can do about this. Just go home, bleach your groceries, put four masks on. You can't do anything. And so for me, that really pissed me off <laughs> because I had, at that point I had committed to me getting back to being healthy and figuring out what was going on in my head that was really making me depressed and anxious all the time. And so 12 pages turned into 50, turned into 100, turned into 200. And so here we are. And then I decided, well, this is, this is going to be a book. This is not going to be a little PDF that I can just give out on my website. Wow. What, is, what an interesting and nearly tragic journey that you've been on. I'm, I'm so grateful for you that you were able to share that with us and that you were able to find some of those health principles to help turn your life around and, and be able to contribute something really amazing to the world, which is your book. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting read. It's, it, is, it does a great job of highlighting some main principles that I'd love to talk with you about today. Um, but you, you explain things, as we already said earlier, in a very simple and easy to understand way. And the pandemic was... I, I, it was super confusing. Like I don't, at this point, I don't blame anybody for thinking anything about anything about the pandemic. <laughs> if you think it came from a lab, sure. It didn't come from a lab. Okay. Like what, like <laughs> vaccines, not vaccines. Like I am so thoroughly confused about all of it as well that, that whatever people think, I think is totally fine. I, I got very much sucked into the news cycle and, and, it, it caused, I would say, very high levels of depression, anxiety, and you start worrying about things that are so far out of your control, and, and you get sucked into this cycle, and you don't know. You really don't know whether the information coming into your brain is legit or not. It's almost like that saying goes, like, if you yes. don't if you don't read the paper, you're going to be um, uninformed. If you do read the paper, you're going to be misinformed. And so it's mm. like, <laughs> like, dude, like, where, where do you go with this? And so it sounds like you experienced a lot yeah. of that same confusion during that time. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I, I'm totally where you're at right now. I do not care what you think right now. As long as you're not trying to hurt me or anyone else, I, I don't care what your beliefs are. And that, that's something that really was a positive that came out of writing this book is I, I gained compassion for myself and for others like I never had before. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's what we need. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I love that approach. And and now that the pandemic is mostly behind us, people aren't you know going to the hospitals or dying nearly as much as they were. I look at this book as something like, okay, this is applicable for us in the future. This is not the last time this is going to happen. This is going to happen again. We travel all over the world. Things get out all the time. Like. This is going to happen again. And so I look mm. at this as like, what lessons did we learn from this experience and what can we apply now to help us do a better job in the future? Is that kind of the way you look at it as well? Yeah, yeah, no. And I think there was, you know, a few points um, while I was writing the book where, where I thought to myself, uh-oh, if I write this book, this is only going to be relevant for like a couple of years and yeah. then the pandemic's going to be over. But then I thought to myself, no, I don't think so. I think this is probably going to be a recurring issue. And I mean, if you look at the work of um, 
Dr. Zach Bush, for example, he's been kind of monumental uh, during this this whole thing, and, and he's given a lot of good information about um, how he thinks it started. So he doesn't think <laughs> that it started in a lab. Um, he thinks that it was uh, naturally created and made, and he thinks that part of the reason that it was made was because there's so much just toxic waste byproducts that are being created, especially out of that one region in China. Um, he he said something about like. Um, like pig waste, for example, like they have the largest concentration of pigs there. And so part of what happens is, well, the waste has got to go somewhere. And so they dump it in, into these toxic pools. And so because of that, there's a lot of these uh, kind of mutations that happen very, very quickly. Um, and so that was, I mean, I don't mean to paraphrase him wrongly there, but that's what I understood and got out of it. Um, and, and so, yeah, I do think there's very serious um, implications for that happening in the future. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm glad you shared that view. Let's go right to the way you open the book, which kind of puts us into how we got into our health predicament to begin with. Zebras and pizzas. What do those two things have to do with each other? <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, yeah, when I started to write this book, it was all about, um, and like I said, I got very sucked into the ancestral health movement. And I'm not going to say, like, I'm still there. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I don't think that I think that we can learn a lot about what we did in our past that can inform us on how we should live today. We can't live the same, but I think there's a, there's a lot there. So zebras and pizzas, <laughs> that was um, me looking into the Hadza hunter-gatherer population in, in northern Tanzania um, through, I mean, they're one of the most well-studied uh, hunter-gatherer populations that we have. Um, you know, you, you look at researchers studying their, you know, their gut microbiome, their metabolic health, their cardiovascular disease incidence, their obesity rates. And, and their longevity, which is, which is insane, right? And so I, I used zebras and pizzas as a way to contrast uh, food, which is, you know, one of the, another foundation of health. And so for them, it's, you know, we're eating uh, this highly refined, highly processed, highly palatable food, whereas they are eating lean protein, very highly nutritious, bioavailable food, right? And so that was really the main, the main stark difference. It was, okay, there's clearly a difference in what they eat, right? But that's not everything. They also just, they live differently. They don't have electricity. They get access to, uh, you know, plenty of uh, sunlight. They're walking around all day. They have community, very strong community. If you look at them, I've seen videos of them. They, they just look so happy. Like, they, like the, the, they're, they don't have a lot of food, but the food that they have, they treasure it very, very highly. And they share it with, with people and in general, obviously it's not like I, I know them personally, but that's what it seems like. Um, and so, you know, zebras and pizzas was this way for me to say, look, they're doing so many, um, ancestrally consistent things, evolutionarily consistent things that we just aren't doing. And I say, you know, Mr. Average Joe, um, in the U S as an example of, you know, someone who wakes up and, you know, takes a statin and eats a donut and eats this highly processed garbage coffee and then eats pretzels and bagels all day. And, you know, he wonders why he can't fall asleep at night. And then he does the whole thing again the next morning. And it's such a stark contrast to the lives we used to lead that gave us very low incidence of these chronic diseases. And you, and you see it now. I mean, the evidence is there. The Hadza have very low incidence of, of all those that I listed of obesity, autoimmune disease, um, and, and many others. And they have very good metabolic health as well. Yeah. It, it's interesting to hear those stories, to read the, the contrast in your book. And it, it almost creates this like longing inside where you describe a modern human and then you describe what their day-to-day -day is. You go out, you walk around, you collect the food that you need for the day, whether that's hunting or gathering. You 
bring it back. You share. You have your community. There's tons of leisure. There's lots of dancing and singing and ritual and, you know, there's egalitarianism and all of these things that you just like, ah, like, you kind of long for it. You realize how much is missing in our lives because we have so little of that left. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the community aspect is one that I think we all uh, realize how important it is now, um, you know, being locked away for so long. Yeah. What, so, so with immunity specifically, what things have we done to ourselves to make ourselves more susceptible to viruses and, and bad pathogens that people like the HOSDA don't really need to worry about as much? Well, I guess we can start with, uh, with the order of my book. So the first chapter, um, on, you know, what are the practical things you can do? That first chapter is on uh, mental health. Um, and I say that immune health begins in the mind because I think it does. And, you know, it, it did for me relating back to, to my story. Um, because if I didn't start to get my, my mind right in the sense of let's get my mindset, right. Okay. I'm, I'm going to have this mindset of, uh, of learning, of being a continuous learner. And, you know, with that comes, okay, once my mindset is right, I can start to work on my health. Um, and then once my health starts to get better, because, you know, you have this link between, between the brain and the gut, you have this link between the brain and all parts of your body, right? You have this field called psychoneuroimmunology, which is emerging to bridge the gap between, uh, your, your mind, your psychology and your immune system. And so if you have these chronic states of, of fight or flight hormones of cortisol, and epinephrine and adrenaline and all these things that, um, you know, kind of signal to our body that we're in a state of, uh, we're going to die. Well, when that happens, you, you put your immune system on the back burner. And so that's not to say that the Hadza don't have any, any stress. It's just to say that there's a few components to, to them. So for them, they can deal with trauma. They can deal with stress. I believe they can deal with it better because they have that strong community and they don't just have like, you know, two strong parent attachment figures and maybe a brother. Um, they have a whole group of people that they they need to rely on for food. They need to rely on them for shelter. So you gotta bet that those those relationships are strong. And so their ability to manage stress and to kind of alleviate that stress and, and kind of disperse some of that is better because they have better community. Um, I mean, it's it, you can also talk about the the physiological side. So we talked about the psychological side, which is, you know, having that so, those social bonds to help you process that stress. But you also talk about how, you know, they have vitamin D, they have, um, the sunlight gives you way more than vitamin D as well. You get, you know, these beta endorphins that make you feel really good. You get these um, increases in, in serotonin and dopamine as you go outside. And so there's much more to, to sunlight than, than um, you know, just the vitamin D levels, even though those can also help with, um, with mood. And so you, that's, that's how I would really, you know, start out talking about the difference in, in immune health is right now we're, we are chronically stressed and it's not that we're being, you know, chased by a, a tiger or a lion, but in this case, it's, you know, paperwork or, you know, you know, your nine to five job or, um, you know, artificial lights, not getting enough sunlight, not getting enough human contact, uh, not meditating, not, um, uh, you know, all of these things that really help us to have a you know, a good mental and and emotional health, basically. Yeah, that's interesting. How can we balance that with our, you know, the 2020-ness of our current life where we have social media, we have the news. It's it's for, For a lot of people, it's really hard to step away from that. How can we balance those two things? Yeah, well, that's tough. And I I don't know that I have an answer for that perfectly. But for me, it's been really, 
really being on myself about limiting my exposure to social media. Um, that was, that was huge. I mean, I've, I've still, I still occasionally have bouts of insomnia, but, um, they're much less frequent now. And part of that has to do with how I control social media. I only, I, I'm trying to only allow myself to go on social media once or twice a day. Um, and I'll, I'll only have a schedule for, you know, uh, morning time after, you know, after lunch and then one time in the afternoon and then that's it done. And, and I'm only letting myself do it for like 10, 10 ish minutes. I only post and, you know, look at things and, and that's it. Um, so that's, that's one way. I mean, also don't start your morning with it. Don't start your morning with some news headline about how people were bombed in Syria or something like start your, start your morning with something better. Like, you know, you, you have that morning to, to decide how your life is going to look that day. And so if you keep doing that continuously, you're going to make a real change in your life. So, um, I think it's, yeah, I mean, you got to stay on top of the news. I don't know what the dose is. I think it depends also from person to person, how much can you handle of the news? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the way, that's the way I do it. Yeah, no, that's great. I think that's a really practical way that people can be thinking about that. And some of the other best practices that we'll go through in your book can certainly help to balance those things out. You've already mentioned going outside. Why is it so important to be outside, out in nature as best, as much as possible, especially early in the day? Yeah. So I actually just had, um, a Dr. Richard Harris on my podcast. So good. I've listened to that one twice, by the way. It's great. He's incredible. He's amazing. Um, and so, yeah, the, the thing that he talks about most with, um, with, with sleep and starting to re-regulate proper sleep cycles is go outside in the morning because, you know, a good night of sleep doesn't begin at 9 PM when you're trying to fall asleep, it starts in the morning. So if you want good sleep, you got to make sure you're doing the right stuff in the morning. So the first one would be, um, light exposure. So uh, you know, if you're lucky enough to live in a place where there is light exposure in the morning, and I mean, even if you're in a place where there's clouds, you're still going to get more brightness outside than you're going to get inside unless right. you have a, a really bright light device that is really for that, like a V light or like a red light therapy device or something. But even then, I would strongly recommend just going outside, getting your skin, getting your eyes, uh, some sunlight in the morning, because what that does is, is it starts to what Dr. Harris talks about is shifting this, this adenosine curve where, you know, you start to get, um, more of a buildup of this molecule called adenosine. And as it starts to build up later in the day, which is what you want, you start to feel sleepier and sleepier and that sleep becomes much easier. Um, and also, I mean, you talk about melatonin release. If you go out in the, in the morning and get some sunlight, that's a very strong cue to your nervous system, um, that it's morning time. Okay start to start the cascade of hormones for the rest of the day. So cortisol should be highest in the morning. It should slowly start to taper off. And then you start to get more uh, serotonin and that serotonin gets converted into melatonin. And then you can, you should be able to fall asleep better. So that's, that's on the sunlight side of things. Yeah. I really love that. What a great explanation of the hormones, because we think of cortisol as a stress hormone and it, it's like cortisol equals bad. And it's like, no hormones are not right. good or bad. They're contextual. Yes. You want high cortisol. Do you want high cortisol all the time? Absolutely not. You want it to be high in the morning. You want to be low later at night so that you can chill out and relax. Right. And so I, I do yeah. want to circle back on the sunshine thing. It is really important um, that when we're going out in the sun, we need to slather ourselves with tons of sunscreen. We need to make sure we always have eye protection on. We need to be totally covered from head to toe so that we don't get skin cancer, correct or incorrect? <laughs> 
So I would say, I would say no. <laughs> Thank you. I would say, a, I would say a hard pass on that one for me. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is a whole rabbit hole in itself. And, and I can't say that there isn't some genetic variability with how much you're going to get burned. You know, what is your susceptibility to something like a melanoma? But I do know that there's way more to it than just sun exposure and that it's has to do with diet. It has to do with, for example, something like retinol, like vitamin A, like you consuming egg yolks and you consuming uh, beef liver or something that can protect your skin from from uh, the damage of, of the UV rays. Uh, getting good sleep, melatonin can protect. And that's not to say you need a supplement with melatonin. I'd be very careful with melatonin supplementation. But that's to say that for, uh, if you get a proper night of sleep and you're really you know, putting blue blockers on, you're being mindful of protecting your melatonin release at night, you are going to clean up all of this damage that you may have done to yourself uh, throughout the day. Um, but, but no, and even with the sunlight issue, there's this... Uh, I don't know how much research there is on this. I just know that the research does exist, that if you do put on sunglasses, you're going to limit the amount of um, alpha MSH that you create, um, which is you know alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone, where you don't actually create as much melanin if you're wearing sunglasses. And so you're getting less of the protective effects of you being out in the sun um, because your body should naturally want to make more melanin so that it protects itself. Yeah, that's such a good point. This is such bad news for my sunglass collection. I love sunglasses <laughs> and I've got a ton of them and I never wear them. I haven't worn them in years unless I'm <laughs> driving or I'm cycling or something where I need the protection. Um, because right. yeah, it, it's so much better to get your your eyes accustomed to the light. And you can see, like again, yeah. if you're watching, I, I have a pretty good tan, um, but I'm a ginger, dude. I get a red beard. I have blonde hair. I burn horribly in the sun, historically. But once I change yeah. my diet. And once I started to, you know, do things like you talk about in the book, use Deminder, the app, get outside mm -hmm. early in the year, start to expose your skin. I never burn. I can't remember the last time I burned a few days ago, I drove an hour and a half up North to go watch this rocket motor test. Um, basically the Artemis rocket that's going to take us to the moon. They fired it on the side of a mountain. Yeah. It, was, it was amazing, but, I but, saw the, that. Yeah. but that was, that was three hours of me being shirtless in the middle of summer during the, the most sun exposure of the day and there's no burn. I, I'm totally fine. So yeah. it's really important to start to build up those natural defenses in our bodies. And again, be smart about it. Start early in the year, start early in the morning. Like you talk about when the sun is low on the horizon and over time, your body will become more accustomed to that without using toxic sunscreens. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, uh, you, what was it? I, I don't want to misquote, but there was, um, uh, a sunscreen company. I don't know if it was Neutrogena or something, but one of them got recalled because they, Surprise, surprise, there was a carcinogen in them. And so they removed them from the, <laughs> from the shelves, right? Um, yeah, I've heard yeah. of chemicals in sunscreen that only are carcinogenic if they get heated up. Well, it's like, oh, of course it's going to get heated up. <laughs> Go out in the sun. Yeah. Like, crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Well, that's crazy. that's really good advice. You also have a lot of really good advice in the book in multiple chapters about breathing. Um, and let's tie that in with breathing, proper breathing, and meditation. Why are those things so important? Yeah. So, so for me, especially when we're talking about mental health, it, it's such a complex topic. Um, and I, I think we've, we've gone away from, you know, saying that, you know, oh, well, depressed people are just kind of, um, they're just kind of sad or, you know, obese people are just kind of lazy. And that's, that's not true. There's, there's a hundred percent, there's uh, social, there's psychological, there's physiological, um, there's hormonal, there are all these things that play into um, all of these disease states. And so uh, for me, doing the meditation and doing the breath work was a way for me to, 
to hack my, my mental state by first going after the biological state. So what I mean by that is I would do either, you know, a four, seven, eight breathing or a Wim Hof breathing or some other type of meditation that I, that I talk about or, or breath work that I talk about in the book. And that gets my body into believing, okay, wait, you're safe. And so the mind follows the nervous system sometimes. Um, and so I do that because it helps me calm first the nervous system, which then helps me to you know, calm the mind. So calm the body and then it calms the mind. So for me, it was partially, that was, that was it for me. It was really getting my body to believe that it was, that it was okay, that I could see the thoughts floating by that you, you're not your thoughts, that it's okay to have, um, you know, really anxious or racing thoughts and, and you can just kind of watch them go by. I mean, you don't have to attach yourself to them. Um, and, and then meditation is also much more than that. For me, it's not just like mindfulness and just kind of sitting down and watching your thoughts, but it's, incredibly powerful. And I cannot overstate how helpful it has been to me to set an intention with the meditation. Like, like really we think about, even with, you know, you talk about things like, um, if we're talking about altered states of mind, you talk about things like, uh, psychedelics, like, um, you know, psilocybin mushrooms or ayahuasca, uh, scientists have coined the term set and setting where your mindset and the setting that you're in really, really influences what type of trip you're going to have. And so if you go into it with a really kind of like fearful mindset, it's very likely that you're going to have a, a poor experience. And so similar with meditation, you, I, I think it's important to really grab the reins of your mind and set an intention for how you want to, how you want to show up in the world, how you want to show up in your day. And for me, that has been monumental. Wow. Yeah, that's very well explained. You also talk about gratitude in that same section. Can you talk about why gratitude is so important? Yeah, well... You know, that's a tough one because I think a lot of people, unless, you know, you do have parents who kind of teach you how to be truly uh, grateful and have some sort of practice where it's very genuine. I think it's hard for a lot of people to, to have a gratitude practice. I mean, I know for me that it was because it felt like I was faking it. It felt like I was just saying a bunch of things that I was grateful for because I was supposed to be grateful for them, but not because I felt the feelings of gratitude. Um, but there's a, there's a neat little exercise that I came across when I was writing the book that says, um, well, okay, yeah, you struggle to, to feel what gratitude feels like, but that's because, well, one, you haven't practiced it and two, you haven't practiced it correctly. And so how do you practice it correctly? Well, think about people or things in your life that you love that really make your life great. Now imagine what your life would be like without them. Mm. Okay. Now go back to your life because you do have those people. You do have those things in your life. It's going to make it a hell of a lot easier to feel those feelings. If you think about what life would be like without them. Yeah, that is a great point. I learned that concept through stoicism, which is like negative, negative visualization. Think of all the things yeah. you have in your life, mentally remove them, take them away. And then you'll be so much more grateful every single day when you experience those things, because everything that we have is so temporary. Everything is going to die. Everything is going to be lost and destroyed at some point, recycled into something different. And so I love that as a concept to, to always just remember, like, like whatever I have around me is temporary, appreciate it while you have it and, and use those mental things to practice so that you can be more appreciative of the things around you. Absolutely. And I think this is something where, I mean, I'm not, I'm not religious per se, but um, I think this is something where a religion or a faith or something that you believe in um, really comes into play and really has positive health effects. It's not just like 
for your mental health. It really is for your physical health. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, I, I mentioned a couple of studies there that show after doing some gratitude practices, you do see these, some of these physical markers improve like, like CRP, for example, for inflammation, uh, and, and others like that. Um, especially when you talk about gratitude, decreasing your stress while well, decreasing your chronic stress in a sense, you know, that's going to have a lot of different positive impacts. Yeah, that's right. I'm glad you mentioned that. If this sounds woo-woo to the listener, this is literal. Yeah. There is scientific studies done on this, let alone all the anecdote that everybody talks about when they have some type of gratitude practice. But this is scientifically backed. This isn't just, you know, an Eastern concept, uh, you know, whatever. This is real. So, okay, so this this journey of yours has gotten you into, you know, so many things that I think would be like unexpected, like talking about breathing and meditation and how important sunlight is like, we don't, we don't hear those in school as like, these are the things that are going to help your health the most. I think it's a lot easier for people to make connection between their overall health and diet. I, I food is very important. It's already something that you've mm -hmm. mentioned that has tons of nuance. Where are you currently on what a proper human diet should be? And how has your mind changed a bazillion times learning about the importance of, of diet? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you know, and kind of where I was, where I was going with that, um, back when I lost my train of thought was this concept of an N equals one experiment where you need to be really conscious of how you react to certain foods, because how you react to certain foods is going to be different than your sister or your brother or your mom or your dad. And so when we're talking about finding the quote unquote optimal diet, I'm not sure that there's an optimal diet for humans. I definitely think that there's like some guidelines for that, but I think, uh, you know, I have seen people that go more uh, like the vegetarian diet and have they done it for years? And, you know, I don't ascribe to that whatsoever, but I think if they're killing it, if they're feeling really good uh, and they don't want to eat any meat, I'm definitely not going to push them, push that on them by any means. Now, I, I definitely do think that having some animal products is, is great. Um, I mean, for me, it is more of uh, like a, like an animal based diet. So for me, it is, you know, waking up and having like, uh, three eggs and ground beef and some avocado and, you know, maybe some, some seasonal fruits in there as well. Um, and maybe some, you know, some honey in, in your coffee or something like that. Um, and, and so for me, the reason that I choose those foods is because they are very, they're incredibly nutritious. They're highly bioavailable. So for example, if I started my morning off with some morning oats, um, then I would be getting, you know, maybe like five grams of protein in the nutrition facts, but how much am I absorbing? Probably not that many. Right. And so you're starting yourself off with a protein deficiency in the morning. If you're not consuming something that's high quality, bioavailable, digestible protein for me, I had a lot of gut issues. So for me, going towards this more animal based approach allowed me to really feel, allowed me to really feel, um, uh, not so full because one of the issues with when you have like a gut dysbiosis issue is sometimes it can make you overeat a lot. And sometimes it can make you feel like you have a few bites of food and you're just stuffed and you can't eat. And so for me, that was my problem. It was, I could never eat enough because my stomach was so screwed up. And so going on this animal-based diet for me cleared up a lot of that. And for me, uh, you know, the acne started to clear up as well. Um, you know, I linked that to some food sensitivities that I had to, uh, it, it mainly seems to pop up with gluten and with, with dairy for me, unfortunately with dairy, because I love dairy, <laughs> but, <Everybody does>. um, <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, so for me, that kind of process of, um, of, of figuring out what did I want to accomplish with my diet? And, and second of all, there's this whole, I, I hate this about the nutrition community and, you know, I was there myself also. So it's like, I'm kind of talking to myself, 
when, when you talk about the optimal diet, oftentimes, and this has happened a lot with my clients, they get very orthorexic. And so they get very, very perfectionistic about their diet to the point where it is literally crippling. They cannot enjoy food anymore. And I think that is, that's no way to live to have that kind of relationship with food. So, you know, it's, it's a conversation of what do you want to get out of your diet? Because there's a lot that you can get out of it. You can get, you know, better skin health. You can get better gut health. You can get better energy levels, mood. Um, you can get better sleep, right? But at what point do you say, I'm just so restrictive that I need to change something else so that I don't have to restrict myself so much on this diet. And so for that, like, what am I talking about? Well, for example, the animal-based diet, you can really heal a lot of those like gut issues, uh, especially like the, you know, the, the leaky guts. And if you're really inflamed, you can do that for a period of time and it can really quell some of that inflammation, but that's not to say you stay there forever. I think having like the broadest range of foods in your diet is going to be ultimately what, what is the healthiest and, you know, emotionally, what is just like, what feels good and what feels best and realistic and, you know, allows you to still engage in, in social settings because like it or not, we are, we are really tied by food. Like our whole, whole social structure is just all around food. And if you can't engage with that, you do feel really left out and it does suck. <clears throat> and it's not a small thing. And it's something that a lot of my clients have struggled with is like, they're doing this super restrictive keto diet and they get to their friends and, you know, they, they just feel kind of alienated. Now, of course, there's some, there's some nuance there, but um, I think including animal proteins, some high quality, um, I mean, whatever you can get, I, I used to be very big on like grass fed, but that's, that's expensive. Like, <laughs> so if you can't afford grass fed, I still think the better option would be to get some sort of conventionally raised uh, meat. And because you're still getting that, the, the B vitamins, you're getting the creatine, you're getting um, uh, vitamin A, you're getting all of these compounds that are harder to find and harder to absorb just by eating plant foods alone. Yeah, that's a really great point. You know, we here talk a lot about the carnivore diet. Um, it's something that I do. I've done for three and a half years where it is just a very minimal amount of plant food in my diet. And that orthorexia thing is totally real. It's something I have to be extremely aware of. It's something I have to be extremely aware of with my clients. That's like, yeah, I do have to acknowledge I feel better when I only eat animal foods. If I eat plant foods, I don't feel as optimal, but, but it's a, it's a really gray area and something we really have to be very cautious of. And it's, I, it, it's why I appreciate somebody like Rachel Gregory, who does uh Metflex and chill that talks a lot about uh, metabolic flexibility. And it's like, you can go down this path and be too restrictive to, to the point that it's causing you damage. And you can bring some of those foods back in that maybe were harming you before. Maybe they won't do that for the rest of your life. And you can start to look at those things. So I see both sides on that. It's a really tricky kind of thing. If you decide to do a very low carbohydrate, or carnivore diet, you have to be very aware of that. Yeah. And you know, us both being health coaches, I think, um, I don't know, I don't want to speak for you, but for myself, it was, uh, I very much felt like, um, I could use a health coach. <laughs> like yeah. I could really use someone that could, because it's like, I have a lot of information packed up in my head, but it's one thing to have information and it's one thing to, you know, stick with the process and, you know, stay, stay committed to it. And, um, you know, stay hopeful that there's going to be, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel where you're struggling so much when you're, with your health. And so 
Um, that's, that's also what I love about health coaching, just kind of like shameless plug there for both of us. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. No. And I agree with you with the animal products and the proteins, even if it's not the highest quality, if you did nothing else, but just get whatever amount of that in your diet to make you feel good and then allow whatever plants, fruits, vegetables, whatever else you want to eat, just allow it to go to where, you know, you feel good. And that at the end of the day is probably the best that anybody can do. So I love that advice. Absolutely. One of the things that pops up in pretty much every chapter and you acknowledge this is magnesium. How important is magnesium? Is that something we should be supplementing with? So, so yeah, I, I think that's, that's tough unless you're really getting in, like, I think potassium is, is a little similar to, to magnesium, not, not just in that they're both electrolytes, um, and, and minerals, but that they, they're harder to get in our diet. Um, especially because, I mean, if you talk about trace minerals, there's a lot of agricultural practices, um, like tilling the soils and, you know, using pesticides and traditional, basically monocrop ag agriculture, that's really destroying the quality of the soil. And in destroying the quality of the soil, you're kind of destroying the, the nutrient density of, of the food that we're growing. And so one of those, uh, is, is magnesium and, and potassium. And so even then, even if the, the, it were, it were pristine in terms of the nutrient density of those foods, it's one, you talk about the bioavailability aspect and two, you talk about, are you even eating those foods that have potassium in them? Most Americans do not get enough potassium. Um, and magnesium is, uh, you know, I can't, uh, I can't remember the exact statistic, but it's uh, at least a quarter. I want to say that are, are truly deficient in magnesium. Um, and there's also this incredible relationship between stress and magnesium. If you have researchers have found that if you have higher levels of stress, you tend to have lower levels of magnesium and it's, it's the other way around. If you have low levels of magnesium, you tend to, uh, you know, kind of have uh, higher levels of psychological stress and are less able to deal with that. Yeah. And so we don't really know which one causes, which it's kind of like tough to, to see like, um, you know, directionality with that, but at least we know that there's, there's some aspect there with, with magnesium that, um, that might be useful with supplementing. I mean, a lot of people don't, consume like, uh, I don't know, you'd have to consume like a, a bunch of avocados or, you know, maybe pumpkin seeds. I know uh, potassium and magnesium, sometimes you have, well, more potassium you have in like a ribeye steak or something like that. Um, but it is tough. It is actually really tough. If you track how much you need, I believe it's like 4,700 milligrams of potassium uh, and, and of magnesium. It's uh, a little bit easier to get, but even then, like if you track over time, how many, uh, how, how much uh, you're getting, it's, you're going to probably find that you're not getting enough. And so I do supplement. And I think that most people would probably should probably consider at least supplementing. And there's like a ton of different forms of magnesium. So that's like an entire other rabbit hole, but yeah, but yeah. So interesting. You mentioned all the foods. I also think about our water. You know, we didn't, we're not drinking spring water the way that we used to. I'm, I'm su it's such a bummer. It's not more convenient to me. Um, it's about 20 miles away, but anytime I'm in the area, there's a, there's a spring that flows through a spigot and you can get it. And the taste of it, the viscosity of that water is so, so different than the stuff I'm getting out of my fridge. And it literally takes the water 10,000 years to go from the source down to where it's harvested. And you think that water is running through all of these different rocks and picking up all these trace minerals and you can taste it. It's in the mouthfeel. It's really incredible. And we don't have that kind of water. We have fluoridated, you know, chlorinated water. That's terrible. That would be a great source of some of those trace minerals that you mentioned if we had more access to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the first person that got me into thinking about um, like natural, like spring water was uh, Dr. Jack Cruz um, because he talked about it being 
not only having those trace minerals, but also being like charged, like structured water. Um, and you, and you, you know, you talk to people like I had Dr. Gerald, Gerald Pollack on my podcast and he's, a um, I believe a bioengineering researcher, um, at the university of Washington. And, and he discovered this fourth phase of water where if you expose water to uh, infrared light, um, and I believe UV light and red light as well, then you get this kind of different charged water where it has, uh, potentially different, different health effects, uh, positive health effects on, on our body when we drink it. And so basically what our mitochondria do, one of the, uh, you know, final products of, uh, respiration is, is water. And a lot of people just kind of overlook that. And even like my professors at school are just like, Oh, it's, it's, it's water. You know, we just create some water. It's like, no, but that water is different. It's, it's deuterium depleted and it's, and it's structured, I believe. So, um, yeah, that's kind of another facet of, of spring water too. Yeah, that's so interesting. I love talking about that. We just talked with uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey about that same thing. It's so interesting to understand, you know, how blood pumps, how the heart actually works so different than kind of what we're told. Um, I do yes. want to talk about one of your la later chapters, the CrossFit craze. Tell us, <laughs> yes. tell us about the CrossFit craze and why we might not want to believe all the hype on some of these like really intense workout programs. Yeah, well, I mean, this kind of came about because of my own uh, journey with with fitness of of being at the extreme of of performance where I really lost a lot of um I, I lost a lot of like my health qualities like um you know brain fog I had insomnia I had gut issues and that's pretty common like there's a lot of my friends who are also competitive swimmers who who have all these issues they they feel like when they get up their joints are kind of creaky like it's like accelerated aging like I kid you not um, especially if you've been doing it for if you're like a professional athlete I also can't imagine you. I mean, unless you're really, really good about like recovery and like your genetics are on point, you're probably going to feel a little bit creaky and uh, something's failing you here and there. And so I, I talk about that because CrossFit seems to have one of these really like diehard cultures of like no pain, no gain. And like, I, I love it. Don't get me wrong. Like I, I love the exercises. Power cleans have been my favorite exercise by far, <laughs> but I do think that it can be taken to the extreme where you're just putting yourself on fight or flight mode even more. And like, imagine someone who, I mean, you have a full-time job and then you, you know, hit up the CrossFit gym uh, every single day after work. And it's like, like, that's a lot of extra added stress on your body. Um, that's not to say don't exercise, of course, that's just to say everyone has different capacities for recovery and you need to kind of gauge that uh, for yourself. Um, because if you don't, and you know, you get to where I was at and I know part of it was that I couldn't recover because I couldn't sleep and you get there, then you're probably putting your immune health, uh, your physical health, um, you know, your gut health on the back burner a little bit because you're, you're, you're kind of overtaxing your body. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought up recovery. That's really the question. When we see the exercise, when we see the Spartan races, when we see the CrossFit games, when we see the marathons and bike races and all this stuff, we get so excited. That's the sexy part of things. We want to do those hard workouts. We want to, you know, engage ourselves in that way, but we don't realize the pros, they recover hard. They don't always yeah. train the way they perform. CrossFit athletes don't do CrossFit. They do specific training for the CrossFit games it's not CrossFit, the same with Spartan, all these other different things. And, and when those professionals are not training, they are 100% recovering. They're getting tons of calories. They're resting. They don't go back to 40 or 50 hours in the office by and large. They have other practices that allow them to perform at that level. Yet again, we see the Gatorade commercial and we think we can do that on a normal life and it's completely out of context. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think people see that. And, and, you know, another part of my book is like, you see that and you see abs, big muscles equals health. I don't, I don't think so. I think there's a lot, there's absolutely health benefits to muscle, uh, to muscle mass, to having more lean muscle mass as you age. Um, that's been linked to longevity. Um, but, and it also, you know, helps to control your blood sugar, helps to control your cholesterol, but if, yeah, again, once you get to those extremes of exercise, um, it may look healthy on the outside, but it's, it's likely not. Yeah. That's such a great point. Well, dude, I think we covered about half of the bullet points of things I wanted to talk about your book. So this is just a, a really good way to tell our listeners that they need to go check out your book. There's a lot of really good information. We didn't talk about EMFs, chemicals and food. We didn't talk about grounding. There's so many other things that we could talk about. So I'll just recommend that people run out and grab your book and use it as a really helpful way to help us learn those lessons that we should have learned even before the pandemic, but especially mm. during the pandemic, so that we can be stronger, more resilient for the future, for whatever comes, you know, down the pipeline next, we can be more ready for it. So I definitely encourage the listener to do that. I do want to ask you about your podcast. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to start a podcast and what are some things you've learned along the way? Yeah. So, uh, with the podcast, I, I started it because I was kind of uh, first I, I saw it in myself where I was being very biased again towards that, like ancestral health space and like all modern medicine is bad. And we just need to go live like our hunter gatherer ancestors. I was really sick of hearing that, um, not just in me, but just in the news. I mean, tune into your favorite news channel and you're going to get like a one-sided report on things that you believe. So I wanted to, to counteract that. I wanted to make sure that I could have people on the podcast that are vegans and really strongly believe in that. And I could have people on the podcast that are animal-based and really strongly believe in that. And I could really try to get to the core of, well, why is it working for you? Or what isn't working for you? And I really wanted to be, I mean, I know I'm going to have bias and I know that I do, but to be as unbiased as possible with, with something like, like health, I think is, um, I think, you know, everyone in the, in the fitness space and nutrition space could really benefit from people who really have that core uh, core mindset of, okay, let's try to figure out what is the real truth because a lot of people think that they have the truth. And so let's try to decipher what's, what's going on. And so that was really the start of, of my, my podcast is, is trying to do that. Um, and I have had people who are more plant-based and I have had more people, I will say that are more animal-based. Um, and you know, I've, I've learned a ton. I've learned more about just, um, being more comfortable with conversation and, you know, being more compassionate because when you have conflicting views, you just, you're either going <laughs> to hate the person or you're going to have compassion for them. And so I think choosing compassion is, is the better thing, especially when you're really committed to, to figuring out what, uh, the quote unquote truth is. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's a really good segue. I was going to ask you specifically about this because listening to your episodes and specifically when you were talking about like bringing people on who are more animal-based versus people that were more plant-based, I was really looking yeah. forward to hearing the conversations with the people that were more plant-based. It just yeah. didn't really materialize nearly as much. I know. And so, so this is what I've noticed. I've, I've tried, I really... I, I'm sure I'm very much biased being a carnivore, being animal based, you know, it took me a long time to get to my current viewpoint. I'm sure I'm heavily biased, but I, I do also notice the more I try to build bridges with people that are plant-based, the more I try to talk to somebody and, and just ask them questions and get answers. I reached out to somebody on Twitter and just said like, Hey, we have completely opposite viewpoints, but I would just love to be your friend and maybe just ask some questions about this. I got blocked. People don't want to come on our show. They don't want to answer questions 
questions about that. And I, I'm seeing the animal-based people come on. They're more than willing to come on. They talk about what they learned. They tell us all the things they don't know. I don't see the same thing on the other side. And so I'm wondering if, if you're noticing the same thing on your podcast. Is it a lack of asking enough plant-based people or are more plant-based people just not willing to talk about it? Yeah, they're just really not willing to talk about it either. I mean, I don't know. It could be pure coincidence, but I, I've reached out to... I want to say at least 20 plant-based people and I've gotten a response from maybe two wow. um, and two or th no, let's say I've gotten a response from like five, um, three of which have confirmed that they will um, be on the podcast. Um, but, but you're, you're right. I, I don't know. I don't know why that is. I don't know if they think that I'm going to try to like, um, like debate them and be really like vicious about it because I'm not. Um, but I mean, I will have, uh, I will say I will have Dr. Hamilton Rochelle. He's who actually published. Yeah. Yeah. He, he published a study that, uh, actually found that plant based protein, if it was matched with, um, you know, omnivores, uh, vegans and omnivores actually gained the same amount of lean muscle mass, which I thought was cool. And it was like, wow, well that goes against what I thought. So I want to talk to you. And he was very willing to do that. But the problem is I think only researchers, only some researchers are willing to do that because I feel like they just have the confidence to say that, well, this is, this is my science. This is my study. I, you know, I didn't know what I'd find. But I found it and I thought it was pretty cool. Whereas, you know, people who are more like the vegan influencers, um, sometimes I feel like they, 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 might, they might think they're being attacked where, you know, I'm definitely not trying to do that. Uh, I really just want to spark up conversation. But yeah, you're right. I, I think that's, um, that's, a, that's an issue. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I, 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 same. I, I have no interest in debating or attacking somebody. I just want to ask somebody the same question so that we have an unbiased, you know, conversation. And it, it is, it is tougher. People like Hamilton Rochelle, he's amazing. We've hosted him, um, talking about that same exact thing. It was really informative. And even, you know, yeah. recently we did an episode with professor Stu Phillips in Canada and he's been researching, you know, muscle turnover for years and years and years. And he on our show came out and said like, look, we've got good studies that say that corn protein can be a good substitute for animal protein. And I thought that animal protein was far superior. And he admitted, like, I might be a little bit wrong about this. Maybe we can, you know, get these animal or plant proteins to be at least similar, if not same in quality. And so I do think it takes that level of somebody that's willing to say like, look, I I'm wrong about this. I've changed my mind about this. And, and yeah, I don't know, maybe it's disappointing. I just, I hope that we can have more of those conversations because I think we'll learn that we have so much more in common than we have, um, you know, a, a, a difference in opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, people like Dr. Tommy Wood, for example, uh, and I interviewed him, he's definitely like the bridge between the, the vegans and the, and the carnivores. And I, I like that about, about his approach a lot. And, you know, some, you know, kind of famous vegan doctor influencers that I won't name commented on his posts and they're like, you know, this is ridiculous. Like you shouldn't be talking about any sort of meat intake. Like this is, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself to be a doctor. And, and then someone else posted like, oh, you guys should have a debate. And so I chimed in and I was like, oh, I'll host the debate for you guys. Like being really serious and genuine, never got a response back. Nothing, uh, nothing back. So, so yeah, I, I don't know. I'm going to keep trying but I'm not hopeful. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. I get the same thing on YouTube comments. This guy is ridiculous. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Okay, what did you disagree with? Nothing. Yeah. What What is one thing you didn't like about it? Nothing. Uh, okay, yeah. so you clearly didn't, you didn't read this, you didn't look into this, you didn't do anything, you've got nothing to contribute to the conversation. When you do, we're open arms, open doors. I would love to hear from you. Until then, like, ugh, nothing to talk yeah. about. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's such a charged topic too. Like, I don't know if we can truly expect people or even like ourselves to really be like, to, to let go of that because obviously food is like food is what nourishes us. Like, you know, we, we really do think like, I really do think that going more animal based, like helps with a lot for me. Um, and so for me, that's, that's an emotional thing. You can't separate out what you feel. So that's, I think where the tough part is, but I think, I think we can learn to kind of put that aside a little bit and just talk about just, you know, the, the facts of yeah. it. Yeah. I love that. I love that you take that approach. You did a great job in your book. You do a great job with your podcast. Yeah. This has been an awesome conversation. I've really been looking forward to this. Um, if you don't mind, tell people where they can go to find you and connect with you and your work. Yeah. So you can find me. I'm most active on, on Instagram at live.dem.well. Uh, you can reach out to me at um, eatdamwell at gmail.com. If you have any questions, if you want to connect um, you can reach me there on YouTube, on the Live Damn Well podcast, and on all podcast platforms. You can, uh, you can also find me there. We actually also just, um, as part of the the retreat center, we just launched a, uh, a nutrition course, um, which is called the Beyond Ancestral Nutrition Course. Uh, so I actually wanted to kind of uh, get that out there as well. So I'll uh, I'll send you the link to that one. Yeah, please do. What format is that course going to be in? That is video, text, um, and an audio. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Oh, that's great. Yeah. If yeah. you send me that link, we will definitely link that in the show notes. Jorge Ramon, this has been an awesome conversation. Really appreciate all of your work. I really appreciate how you were able to push through, um, you know, a really difficult time in your life by using natural practices. And I love how you're sharing that message today. So thank you so very much for everything that you've done. Thank you for the wonderful book, which I love and have here. It's great. Yeah, yeah and, you're uh, very welcome. Absolutely. And thank you for your podcast. It's really great. I love following your content. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate the the, the opportunity to, to get the chance to talk to people like you about yeah, this topic. Absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. Thank you again so very much for continuing to listen to and support Boundless Body Radio. This little passion project that we started almost two years ago just continues to steadily grow. We are reaching more people than ever, and we keep receiving so many inspirational and amazing messages from you. We see it in all the reviews that we get, and we really appreciate that. So thank you so very much for that. We love understanding which guests you really connect with and which content you really appreciate the most. We wanted to take a second also to give a huge shout out to our amazing guests Yes, we love the people that we've been able to host and all their amazing content in these awesome conversations. And we have to say in the pipeline, we already have lots of great episodes that will be coming to you soon and lots of great guests. Some will be new to the show and others will be familiar to you if you have been listening to our show for a while. So look forward to that. On our website, which is myboundlessbody.com, we are still running a lot of the same offers that we have been running for the last few months. These offers are complimentary, and we've really had a great time connecting with people all over the world who are taking advantage of these. So if you go to our website, which again is myboundlessbody.com, on the main page, you'll find a button that says book now. You can book either a functional movement screen, which is a movement screening tool used to evaluate movement patterns to optimize mobility, fitness, and injury prevention, 
We do that virtually through Zoom with a bit of creativity. You can book that session, which takes about 30 minutes and is complimentary. You can also see another booking for a 30 minute consultation with us where we can really chat about anything that you like. We can talk about fitness or nutrition or help you come up with a plan for you to be able to reach your goals. As always, it really helps us grow if you leave us a rating and review. So please be sure to go to Apple, leave us a five-star rating and review. And thank you as always for listening to Boundless Body Radio.